This is a fascinating conversation I had with Karina Tahusajarana of the Jakarta Post. Um, she was kind enough to take time to speak to me about the ongoing situation in West Papua. Um, we're going to try to do uh, several features on West Papua, basically whoever we can get. It is a really dangerous situation. Um, I've been emailed by journalists basically saying, I can't talk, I'm going safe house to safe house, um, or in the case of, of figures I was trying to interview before, they're, they're now actively sort of being um, uh, what's persecuted um, by the uh, Indonesian state. Uh, so the government basically, I won't allude to who, but if you search around, you'll see instances of, of journalists now who try to cover West Papua either being banned outright from the island or, or actively being sort of prosecuted under very spurious charges of treason or very spurious charges um, designed basically to make them shut up and, and stop talking about West Papua. Um, we think this is a really important issue, and once again, we're sort of disappointed, both in mainstream media and uh, more left media, that they haven't done a, a good job um, uh, talking about this issue, perhaps with the exception of, of The Guardian. So I hope this conversation sheds some light on West Papua, on the complicated relationship it has had with Indonesia, what perspectives of uh, Indonesians are on the West Papuan issue, as well as um, what the world can or, or should do about trying to bring justice to this situation. So I hope you enjoy our chat. If you like what we're doing, um, please support us. You can um, always find out about the tours, the interviews with artists, the activities we're trying to build in Asia at asiaarttours.com. We consistently have pretty good um, uh, videos, I, I, I dare to say, on our, our YouTube. And um, as usual, feel free to reach out. You can always get in touch with me at matt at asiaarttours.com. All right, here's our chat with Karina Tehusa Jarana of the Jakarta Post on West Papua, Indonesia, and the current situation with protests there. I hope you enjoy.
I've been reaching out to everyone frantically the past uh, two or three weeks to try to um, get more information about what's going on. So let's get into it. So could you say your name, um, where you're writing currently, and then any other pertinent information for an introduction? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, my name is Karina Teosijarana, and I'm a journalist at the Jakarta Post, which is a, a daily newspaper in Indonesia. And I've been uh, covering the the situation in Papua since the protest started on, I think it was August 19th. So the information I got um, from some of the West Papua activists was more emotional. It wasn't sort of a beat by beat timeline, which I think would be useful. Um, so if it's possible, could you give us two quick timelines, both the contemporary timeline? So what's happened in the recent sort of month, two months that has spurred these protests? Uh, and, and then sort of from the historical timeline, what would people need to know about why there would be this sort of simmering anger or uh, political instability in West Papua? Okay. Um, so for what, what's, happen the, what's happening currently, I think it probably started around, um, I think it was like 16 or 17 August. So um, the uh, 17th of August is actually Indonesia's Independence Day. And usually on our Independence Day, like everyone like um, puts up the Indonesian flag. Uh, and there was this one uh, Papuan student dormitory in Surabaya, East Java, where uh, the residents, uh, the, the like their neighbors wanted them to put up an Indonesian flag because there's all, all, always been like Papuan students are usually um, activists. And some some of them are like pro Papuan independence, so I guess like the the neighbors wanted them to show like Indonesian patriotism, so they 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 put up an Indonesian flag in front of the dormitory. Then afterwards, I think the next day it was I think that was on August seventeen, which was a uh, Friday. Oh no, sorry, a Saturday. Um, the the, the flag was somehow um, damaged and people uh, started um, circulating in, in WhatsApp groups and like on social media that, that the Papuan students had like purposely thrown the flag away. And this led to a bunch of these um, uh, mass organizations, we call it. They're kind of sort of like vigilante organizations a little bit and, and um, who are made up of like local residents to like come to the dormitory and kind of like demand that these pop one students uh, be arrested or like come out for for damaging the flag. So while while the dormitory was being sort of like um, surrounded by all these people, that the police were also there, but they didn't really seem to have you know done anything to kind of stop these people from surrounding the dormitory. While this was going on, there were some people calling the Papuan students uh, monkeys and also other like animal names like dog, pig, but particularly monkey was was the the slur that like was the most hurtful for the Papuans. And um, it was like it because it's I guess it's something that that's been going on for a long time like uh, Javanese people especially like consider Papuans as like monkeys, which is like a racist 
and because it has like racist undertones. And so this happened on uh, Saturday. And then on Saturday also um, police ended up storming the dormitory with like tear gas and arresting about 40 students for questioning uh, regarding the flag incident. But in the end, none of the students were uh, named the suspect. They were released the next day on Sunday. So this was all happening in um, East Java on uh, over like the weekend. And then suddenly on, um, on Monday, which is August 19, uh, there started uh, demonstrations, there are reports of demonstrations in various uh, cities in uh, Papua and West Papua came through. Uh, it's, it started around, I think, the morning. And um, it's been going on, on for on and off, like in different cities for uh, around the next two or three weeks. Yeah. So that's what the current situation is. Yeah. And um, I guess to center some of these concepts and then we can dive into the historical if you think it's important. Well, actually, let's center the historical and then we can go into a bit of the minutia or sort of certain political figures. So why, if I'm looking at a map and I see Papua New Guinea and then I see West Papua, what were the historical circumstances that led to this uh, bifurcation? And then in terms of the legacy of colonialism, how has it sort of been a continuation of, if you're taking the West Papuan perspective, what would be the, the dueling perspectives and where do most, um, let's say, human rights organizations or independent international organizations, would they be taking the Indonesian side of, of we're developing this, this is something where we've put a lot of infrastructure in, or would our activists or these human rights organizations more sympathetic generally to maybe the Papuan position of, look, this was a continuation of colonialism, this is something where we haven't had the right to self-determination, and this is an unjust situation. So what are some of the historical um, anchors that we would need to sort of understand why there are these very differing opinions and different Papuas? Okay, so um, first off, like you said, the, the, island, the island is called New Guinea, right? And then so the western part is now Papua New Guinea. And the, oh, sorry, the eastern part is Papua New Guinea. And the, the western part is uh, what uh, in Indonesia it's like two provinces, West Papua and Papua. So uh, what I uh, I've been reading about the history a bit actually recently. So until around the 16th century, that island was pretty much like off everyone's radar, New Guinea, the whole island, and like um, colonial colonial empires only like made contact with Papua around like. 16, 1660, around around that time, and um, there, I mean, there wasn't really much, uh, many settlements in Papua, and there was not much contact with Papuan people. But then uh, it started off. I think the British uh, claimed the the eastern part of New Guinea, which is now Papua New Guinea, and then the Dutch because they owned. Uh, the, the Dutch East Indies, which is what is now called Indonesia, they, they decided to claim the, the western part of New Guinea because, because they, they said that it was uh, part of like one of the vassal states in the Dutch East Indies. But actually, um, the Dutch didn't really do much there in, in Papua 
over like the 300 years of colonizing the Dutch East Indies. Like Papua was like kind of like just there, but um, there wasn't much, um, uh, like they didn't make many settlements there and it wasn't a very a big focus of like the Dutch colonial government. But then it, it started becoming an issue around 1945 when Indonesia became independent. So there was actually uh, one of the issues was like how much of like what is considered part of Indonesia. And that was like something that was debated by the founding, the like Indonesia's founding fathers, because um, like it's actually like there's like hundreds of different tribes and ethnicities and languages in Indonesia. So it's not really clear cut like what is actually should be considered Indonesian and isn't. So um, most of the founding fathers said that they wanted to take, you know, the, the western part of New Guinea because uh, it it was part of the Dutch East Indies, but um, at least one who was like the first uh, vice president of Indonesia, Mohamed Hatta, he said that you know because uh, Papuans are um, ethnically Melanesian and they're different from the rest of Indonesia who are mostly like Malay. So um, he he argued that it shouldn't be, but m- most everyone decide argued that. Western uh, New Guinea should be part of Indonesia. But then uh, uh, the issue started when the Dutch were supposed to like hand over sovereignty to Indonesia. They wanted to keep uh, West Papua as uh, as part of their own. And And they also promised independence to West Papuans. And then this become became like a prolonged debate from like the 40s, the 50s until finally there was uh, this thing called the New York Agreement. It was in 1962, if I'm not wrong, which was between um, Indonesia and the Netherlands, but it was like brokered by uh, the US and also the UN, where they they agreed to uh, give West Papua like a choice on whether or not they wanted to be independent or uh, to join Indonesia. And this is called the, the, the referendum that was held, I think it was 69, 1969, it's called the Act of Free Choice. But uh, the New York Agreement was actually like very vague about how the Act of Free Choice was supposed to be um, like arranged. So instead of like a one man, one vote system that is like that was expected by most Papuans what happened was like they picked just like a handful of like tribal leaders and those leaders were the ones who said like whether they wanted to join Indonesia or not and this is widely considered to be rigged like in Indonesia like in like official Indonesia history books this is like uh they made a free choice you know they they freely joined Indonesia but and many historians consider it to be like very like orchestrated to to have been like so that uh, West Papua would join Indonesia. So that was in 1969. And then since then, um, I think West Papuans have a feeling of that the area being exploited because it's very rich in natural resources and also the the biggest copper and gold mine in the world, Freeport, right, is there. And that was like under the Suharto era. It was like, uh, like, very exp- 
exploited. And also, Suharto also had this policy called um, transmigration, which is because uh, Java, which is uh, the the most populous island in Indonesia, it's like it's very populous and it's overcrowded actually. So what happened was like he he created this program to to move all these like Javanese people to other islands, including Papua, which is which is like much less densely populated. So there was like an influx of Javanese migrants, which made Papuans feel like 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 a minority in their own you know in their own homeland. So that was what was happening in the under the Suharto era, and then um, and there were all also been like um you know during this time in the 60s there was also this uh, free free papua movement that that started because um they, that rejected the act of free choice and that was a, an armed movement and there were like clashes with the military throughout like the 60s and uh 70s and then when suharto fell in 1998 there was a bit more um, room for freedom of expression in Papua. And uh, one of our presidents, uh, our fourth president, it was like, I think he took, he took the presidency in 1999. He was um, uh, Abdurrahman Wahid. He was uh, he, much more open to listening to Papuans. And Papuans, I think a lot of Papuans say that he is like, the president who most understands Papua, and he allowed, like, uh, Papuans to fly their flag, and to sing the song, and like was much more open to like, at least listening to Papuans, uh, you know, f feelings about like whether or not they want to be independent. But then after that, uh, the next few presidents were again much more repressive towards Papua, and the current president. Uh, Jokowi Dodo or Jokowi, he has since he came into office in 2014, he's kind of like had this particular um, focus on Papua. He's been to Papua more times than any other previous president, and he's focused. He's like, you know, created a bunch of infrastructure projects there, including including this like very long uh, toll road. It's called the Trans Papua. It's like a highway. And uh, he's concentrated a lot about like improving like the roads and infrastructure there. And I think for human rights groups, they will mostly say that there's a, a long history of human rights abuses in Papua that has been sort of overlooked by the Indonesian government. And uh, the current president, when he first campaigned, he promised that he would resolve these abuses and like uh, conduct investigations and stuff. But that hasn't been done. And basically, like, Papuans don't have any, um, like, they should have the right to express themselves and express their political opinions. But that's been very, um, very suppressed under in the Indonesian government, including even this current one. I think that's really important to note, uh, particularly for uh, US, uh, the U.S. has a tendency to graft whatever has happened in the U.S. onto other countries, um, which is a very bad habit um, that, uh, particularly in my discussions with Hong Kong 
protest researchers or activists they've been frustrated by because they're saying, look, we're, <laughs> we're in a post-colonial situation. You can't <laughs> say, do these one-to-ones with the U.S. And for I bring that up for Indonesia because certainly in our media, there's a very lazy trope of comparing the current president, Jokowi, to our former president, Barack Obama. Oh, you know, they're both these very tolerant, sort of multi-ethnic, diverse uh, standard bearers for the principles of liberalism. So uh, this will be a two-part question. What have been uh, what what has been the violence and repression that's currently been unleashed in West Papua? So what does that actually look like? And we can get into things. Um, you can take that wherever it is in terms of things like sexual violence, in, ter- in terms of things like the the shutting down of internet, the um, recent uh, campaign of terror against journalists, um, Veronica Corman is but one example. I've talked to other Indonesian journalists who've said, you know, they're having to hide basically from the military when they're on West Papua. So what does that violence look like? And how does maybe like a figure like an Obama or a Trudeau, how does the rhetoric not match the response? What has been the violence and the repression we've seen on West Papua? And then if we compare that to perhaps uh, the eloquent response of someone like Jokowi, how does that perhaps not line up with his rhetoric? Like you said, um, about two days after the protests first started last month, the the government decided to 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 uh, impose an internet blackout on Papua and West Papua, which meant like basically no no internet at all, not just social media, but like everything. So so um, there are like hospitals that can uh, get like the their payment platforms online weren't working, so everyone had to pay in cash, and it was like, it was uh, a big mess. And it, it only was lifted starting about two days ago, like, uh, and not completely. There's still some parts of Papua that are under internet blackout, um, and that has made it actually very hard to verify the reports of violence that is going on, that has been going on in Papua f- over the past. Uh, two or three weeks because um, well just after the protests some of the protests di- did get violent like uh, the protesters set fire to some government buildings and um, and like burned tires on the roads and stuff like that and there was this one particular protest in the in a region called Deyai where um, the protesters clashed with uh, security forces, which were include police and so, uh, also the military, and the reports are vary about how many civilians were killed. At least one soldier was killed, and uh, the 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 police say that five civilians were killed, but we have received eyewitness res- reports that six civilians were killed, and then the the regent, which, who's like kind of like the mayor, the mayor of Dei the deputy mayor DAI said that there was like eight people, eight civilians who were killed. So that's, that's still unclear how many people died there. And then last week in Jayapura, uh, which is the capital of the province of Papua, uh, in Jayapura, there was, uh, again, demonstrations. And then after the demonstrations, uh, there were reports that groups of, um, non-native Papuans, like, uh, basically like, just the migrants that I uh, talked about, like from Java or from other places who were living in Jayapura, there were like some groups of these non-native Papuans that 
like started counter attacks against the native Papuans who were protesting. And police say that at least four people were killed in those clashes. But uh, again, it's like very hard to confirm, like independently confirm how many people are actually killed. And that th that's just what happened in the past three weeks. Um, before that, um, there, there's, there's actually an ongoing military operation in Papua that's been ongoing since last um, December, December 2018, when an armed group, um, they killed a bunch of uh, construction workers who were working on the, the Trans-Papua Jokowi's uh, big project, the Trans-Papua uh, Highway. And um, they killed, I think it was, I can't remember, but I, it was like over 10 people, I think. But, um, and then after, after that um, mass murder, the, 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 the government sent in a bunch of military forces and it's in, the area, in an area called Anduga. And there's been ongoing firefights between military forces and the armed rebel groups since December. And uh, hundreds of people have been displaced because of that ongoing conflict. And just um, in August, actually, there was a, a human rights group reported that at least 182 people, 182 refugees who were displaced because of the conflict died because they didn't have uh, enough food or because of illness. So that's uh, a big thing that has been gone underreported, even in Indonesian media. And uh, so that's just this year. But before that, there's been a lot of, um, you know, uh, reports of, of, of murders or uh, kidnappings by police or military forces. Um, it's usually uh, it's against activists or against like when there's a demonstration uh, police will say that the, the demonstration became violent, so they had to react with violence. But but then um, human rights groups will say, no, actually, it wasn't. So it's like, it's, and um, it's very hard to get uh, independent confirmation because, also because, like, journalists are restricted there, particularly foreign journalists. It's very hard to get in there. And um, even once you get in there, it's, it's not... Um, it's not, it's, again, because there are ongoing military operations, it's, it's, it's not a very safe place to be as a journalist. And um, even um, the Jakarta Post has two contributors there. And even they, they're just in Jayapura, and even they ha have a hard time trying to, like, you know, nail all the facts down. So, so that's, like, the, an overview of, of what's been going, the, the violence that's been going on there. And like you said about, Jokowi's response, um, actually, like like you said, Jokowi comparisons between Jokowi and Obama, I feel are like very, you know, um, very thin at best. And and uh, Obama is a great great speaker, and Jokowi really isn't, I don't think. And um, his response, especially like uh, during these this this particular conflict, after uh, the the racial incident in Surabaya. His response was very, was considered very weak in by many human rights groups. Like he, he didn't even really like address the racial abuse, but he just, 
he just asked Pop once to to forgive um, what happened, and um, he he always says he always talks about that he he wants to have dialogue and that he wants to uh, continue to uh, like improve the infrastructure there to make sure that that uh, to improve the the lives of Papuans there, like the the quality of life, like the economic opportunities there. But uh, again, at the same time, the government has been cracking down on activists. Like you said, Veronica Coleman, who is, I think she's outside of the country right now. And there's this whole, um, and um, even on, on like social media, I think people who, who defend uh, Veronica or who, who kind of like show sympathy toward, towards the idea of Papuan independence are very, are like targeted by a bunch of like, um, what we call like buzzers or like bots or like, like they're, they're like just, uh, swarmed against. And, um, and so like, um, what human, human rights groups have criticized Jokowi for saying like, okay, you say you want dialogue, but any, like people who, you know, want, all these activists are who want to have this dialogue are instead being arrested, and um, you keep talking about um, development, like infrastructure, even though that's not really going to solve the problem of like Papuans feeling um, that this injustice has been going on for like decades, and that uh, it keeps going on, and there's no like punishment for the people who who perpetrate all these like human rights abuses. So in terms of the, um, the Papuans I talked to have been a bit dismissive in terms of the spending on infrastructure because from their perspective, a lot of the capital that owns um, extractive uh, industries within uh, West Papua are not really um, set up for the benefit of the West Papuans. So when I talked to uh, many of the, or not many of the activists, but one of the main activists, they'll make it sound along the lines of, look, well, okay, you want to spend on infrastructure, but that is infrastructure designed to facilitate uh, a quicker or more uh, less capital intensive extraction of these industries that already exist in West Papua. So copper mining, gold mining, timber logging, uh, and so on. So I'm wondering in terms of these claims of economic development, is it very important to say, okay, but economic development for who? Um, and is it, are there nuanced criticisms or fair criticisms that, that can be made of Jakawi's sort of rhetoric of economic development if the, uh, the CEO of a lot of the companies is from Java or Australia or America, will those benefits really be going to West Papuans? Yeah, um, so like the, the Papuans I've spoken to and the human rights groups I've spoken to also have the same kind of criticisms, like basically like the, the highway is great and all, but like who's actually using the highway? It's like, um, it's more for like big businesses and um, like uh, corporations that are, uh, as you say, not owned by like native Papuans. And um, it's a big... Uh, uh, one of the the researchers I spoke to, he he's a researcher for the Indonesian um, Institute of Sciences, and he and he is part of a group that has been like making this 
a publication called the Papua Roadmap, and it, it's been in, in in the works for like a few years now. And uh, and he said that uh, pop ones don't feel even like though Jokowi, let's say they're 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 he's building all this stuff. Pop ones don't feel like they're involved in it. Like they don't feel like. Uh, Joko is asking them like what do they need but instead he's just like building all this stuff and like saying you know you should be happy now you know and um, and uh, it's one of the worries for pop ones is that um, you know palm oil is like one of Indonesia's biggest exports and there's like a lot of land in Papua that that could be used for palm oil and but at that land is like it's like mostly like forests, which are inhabited by like these indigenous uh, peoples, like uh, these tribes. And I actually went, I went to uh, Sorong in West Papua uh, last uh, this February, February two thousand nineteen, to cover an indigenous community there that uh, they were trying to show that they could develop their own like. Uh, economy, like their own, like sort of traditional economy, using like their their traditional fishing methods and like um, foraging, and to try and demonstrate that they don't need like these palm oil plantations to come in and like kind of like destroy their forests and like under the guise of like economic development. So, so that's like a, a big worry is. Like one of the, the the concerns is that this infrastructure is just going to make it easier for outsiders to kind of like exploit Pop One's uh, natural resources. And I think it's important to note with the explosion of protests in um, in Asia, um, in places like New Zealand. Uh, we might even include uh, Hawaii there because many Hawaiian activists do not consider themselves part of the United States uh, with the history of the United States refusing to honor treaties that would have granted them independence as a, as a separate kingdom um, in places uh, like um, in places like this or um, uh, what would go on in Standing Rock in the United States or with First Nation communities. Um, but I think there's been a long history of, of activists in uh, sort of the Australian Indonesian region of saying, look, your economic development is not the value I share. So when you view everything through sort of this um, and uh, this capitalist metric of sort of development, you have to ask these very tough questions of number one, okay, development for who? For, you know, the, the copper mine that, you know, will pay me substandard wages. And if I try to form a labor union, there's a very violent history of labor activism in Indonesia. Uh, I might get killed. Or the second question is, is this what the people there actually want? Is this what they think is important? And so is that uh, that second point fair to emphasize that there are larger questions here about culture and values that maybe um, Jokowi's uh, developmental policies wouldn't be able to adequately address. Yeah, that's uh, definitely one of the big things that um, people I talk to, uh, Pop Ones and researchers and human rights groups uh, emphasize is that Pop Ones really want to feel involved, feel like they have a say 
in what is going on, uh, like what in the government policies on their uh, on their like homeland. So it's right now, even though you know, obviously there are improvements like on infrastructure. I, I've actually been there and I've seen that the roads look really good, but um, it's uh, it's not really like as you say, like not really what they want and what what they feel that they need really. And it's not, it's not really, it's really not just uh, Papua and in Indonesia, there's a lot of um, indigenous, indigenous uh, peoples in, in various regions in Indonesia that, that feel the same way. Like they, they feel like they're being forced out of their homes or like forced to participate in like this development sort of like in, in quotes, right? Like development uh, and like palm oil plantations and logging and mining and all this, even though that that's not really what uh, they want and not like not in accordance with their values. So when it when it comes to um, the racism that we see, so we, when we see this sort of mapping, if you're an American and you see this term like monkey, wh where is this racism coming from? And Within Indonesia, what does that also connect to that is important to understand why there would be these buzzers? Why would figures want to harm Papuans? Why would there be this very sort of nationalist uh, attitude that you see if you can't hang that flag? And then where does some of this racism come from if, if it can be traced in a way that somewhat, um, uh, that somewhat teases out uh, its historical legacies and origins? So I think just as to start with, there's a, already like very, like casual racism is sort of like part of being Indonesian sort of, because Indo Indonesia is like, there's a lot of, Indonesia is sort of like a made up country in a way, right? Because like, it's not, it's not like a nation state like France or Spain, where it's like mostly one ethnicity, but it's like, there's a, a lot of different ethnicities and all these different ethnicities have like their own prejudices and like stereotypes of other ones. So there's like, like, for example, there's like, uh, the Batak, Batak people is like from North Sumatra. Like their stereotype is that they're like very, uh, like loud and they're, they're like, they'll, they'll get very, they're like temperamental and they'll get mad easily. And then, like in Java, there's like the stereotype of like, oh, Javanese people are just like slow, and they're like too deferential, and they're they're like uh, overly polite, and so there's like all these. That's just like something that Indonesians won't consider that racist. Like if you say, oh, that's because he's Javanese, that's like something that happens every day in everyday conversation in Indonesia, and that um, like if I were to say like, oh, that's racist, they'd be like, well, what are you talking about? Um, but it's, that's like the, one of the things is that there's like casual, casual racism that goes unacknowledged in like Indonesia, like every day. Uh, and it's worse with Papua because even though like many Indonesians will say like, oh, Papua is part of Indonesia and it can't be independent. There's, there's like sort of, um, uh, a, a feeling that. Papuans aren't actually different from Indonesians, like from most Indonesians, because again, like they're physically very different from the most, most especially Western Indonesia, because like Western Indonesians are mostly like um, light brown skin and like straight hair, uh, while Papuans are like much more darker skinned and they have like curly hair, most of them 
have curly hair and and they're again like they're very they look more like um like Samoans or like Papua uh Papua New Guineans rather than like um rather than most like what most Indonesians consider to be like the Indonesian look so that's and there's also like the stereotype of Papua being very like um undeveloped like underdeveloped like they live in the forest they live in huts you know they they're like primitive that's like a stereotype of Papuans that that has been going on like uh for for a very long time so and so there's also this uh thing where Papuan students Papuan uh, university students who come over from Papua to like Java where like most of the the top universities are they'll 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 um um because in 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 Indonesia there's usually not like university dorms so students have to like like find their own like rental spaces right like their own like have to go to like a boarding house and try to find a rental like these Papuan students will be like rejected from boarding house because like there's a stereotype that they that they're drunkards because again most of Indonesia is also like about 80 to 85% of Indonesia is Muslim but Papua is majority Christian and Catholic Protestant and Catholic so and so most of Indonesia are Muslim that they they don't drink and these Papuans because they're Christian there's like this this stereotype that oh they drink and therefore they're drunkards you know so th- it's like a lot of these like i think there's like a, been a lot of like this little like casual racism that's been going on for like decades and then it finally kind of exploded in the in the incident in uh Surabaya uh in August so so that's like why um that's i think part of why uh th- and and the thing is that most indonesians um like even like uh my parents or like my family members they'll say like what what's racist about it like the 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 term monkey like a lot of people are you know, on social media and and stuff are like saying like it's not really racist and then it's like yeah it's it's and I, you know trying to explain how it's racist is like very hard because of the 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 low key kind of racism that goes on like daily So um that's that's for the racism part and for the nationalism part um like like I said Indonesia is kind of like this made up country and really to think about it is like it's like it's kind of a miracle that this country has stayed as one country for as long as it is and part of the reason how it's done that is like um we've rallied around this like national identity of Indonesia and like there's like the flag and the and the ideology is called pancasila and and uh it's everyone's like very protective of this this uh these like symbols because i think there's like a feeling that this is the only thing that's keeping us together basically so i think there's a there's there's a worry even though like maybe people don't don't necessarily say it out loud but there's a worry that if we let papuans like have a referendum or if we let them talk about independence and then, then what's to stop this other region from asking for independence or that region or that region so it's like uh you know they really want to maintain the unity of Indonesia 
And because of this, there's like, there, there's a slogan actually in uh, Indonesian slogan called um, NKRI Harga Mati, which is like a, a national slogan. And roughly translated, it means like the Republic of Indonesia is non-negotiable. So basically like the borders cannot be like basically nothing can leave now because this is non-negotiable. So and that's what a lot of people have been repeating in light of like Papuan's demands for like self-determination. And as um, uh, an Indonesian journalist who has studied abroad in the U.S. Uh, and it, you seem um, quite uh, perhaps sympathetic to criticisms of the West that we've done a lot of incredibly evil things. I haven't personally, I was just born here, but our governments have done incredibly evil things, manipulative things. What is the sense when you talk to activists, be it in Papua, because I know um, Benny Wenda's uh, office, for example, you know, has tried to work with things like uh, international bodies in Europe or through various governments in the UK or the Dutch. What is the sense for, for, uh, Papuans on the ground or Indonesian allies on the ground of wanting the West help while also wanting the West to just listen or to stay out of it. What is sort of the tension going on there where if I'm a Westerner interested in West Papua, what is the sense of how you would be helping a West Papuan versus how you would be perhaps without meaning to um, repeating the the arrogance of a colonialist, where you you would come in and say, "Well, this is, you need to do this, this, and this." So, what is, what are some of the tensions going on with the West Papuan activists wanting to get Western governments involved, and then what is the duality of where we want you involved, but at the same time, you are not the ones who should be uh, figuring out what is to be done. That is our discussion to have with with Indonesia. So, I think. Like, as you said, uh, Benny Wenda's um, organization, um, he has called several times for for the UN to step in because uh, the UN commissioner, high commissioner for human rights has said that she wants to visit Papua and the Indonesian government has actually agreed, but they never set a date. Like, they, they, like the, the UN keeps asking and Indonesia keeps like not giving a date. So, so that's one thing, like, uh, there have been some groups that have called for UN, um, the UN to step in, but, um, there's also like a feeling because the UN, the, the referendum in 1969, the act of free choice that, um, many Papuans feel was rigged. That was also actually, you know, overseen by the UN. So there's also some distrust there, I think. And while while some groups, um, Benny Wenda's group, and there's this um, Papuan University Student Alliance that has also called for the UN to get involved. I think um, most um, domestic human rights groups have sort of um, tried not to uh, call on like foreign governments because the thing is like once you are perceived to be um, there's there's an Indonesian term called like antek asing, which kind of means like foreign puppets, and that's like another kind of like nationalistic sort of slogan, where if if you're seen as being like too close to foreigners, it's like, oh, you're just like being the puppet of the U.S. or the puppet of Australia. So so actually, like last week there was this whole the government 
started this whole like um, narrative that the all these protests that are going on in Papua, it's not actually Papuan people, you know, having legitimate concerns, but it's like these foreign parties are involved and like, you know, and just like he heating things up and provoking things so that, you know, I don't know why they would want to do that, but that's what the government is saying. Like, um, uh, the, there's like foreign parties and it's not like legitimate Papuan grievances. So I think that's why a lot of human rights groups and even uh, and Papuan groups that are like not, not explicitly pro-independence, like um, pop, uh, churches, you know, like religious organizations, they try to not... Um, Involved, they tend to try not to involve foreign um, foreign intervention because that creates this whole other. It it makes it harder to gain the sympathy of most Indonesians because then you'll be perceived as like like a puppet or like basically like you're you're trying to you're just like doing this for foreign interests and that's one of the 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 accusations against Veronica Coman actually right because she's um, she's currently outside the country and people have uh, said that oh this means that she's like a foreign puppet she's she's like riling up all these pop ones because that will help foreigners I don't know get a better deal or something like that and for um building solidarity beyond Papua have there been any uh, conversations of trying to um, talk to other First Nation people. Do the Papuans see themselves as part of a larger conversation? When I talked to Wendua's office, Benny Wenda's office, he was saying things along the lines of his office, his spokesman, that they see themselves connected to these larger conversations of climate change, that they see themselves connected to these larger conversations, as we were talking about in Canada, the U.S., Hawaii, and New Zealand, of sort of First Nations people, uh, people who've, who've never really been able to express uh, uh, their independence or their a different set of values than sort of national capitalism. Do they see themselves as part of a larger um, uh, fight or a larger struggle, or is are the majority of activists focused solely or... Uh, for the most part, only on this question of, of uh, self-determination uh, and independence? The activists, the major act, like groups that I've spoken to are mostly focused, as far as I can tell, on Pop One uh, self-determination. But there are other, like the indigenous communities. Indonesia has its own, um, there's like an organization called um, Aman, which is... The Indigenous Peoples Alliance of the Archipelago, which is uh, it's uh, an organization uh, whose members are like uh, indigenous communities all across Indonesia, and they they definitely have um, ties with like environmentalist groups and um, and also uh, other like. other indigenous peoples outside of Indonesia and they they are also involved in advocacy for Papua but they're not involved um, they're not calling explicitly for independence or self-determination but at least for um, fair treatment and the uh, and resolving human rights abuses in the region and so um 
for, for these questions, so I've been really attacked, not viciously, not anything like Veronica, but, you know, I've, I've had to go through some abuse because I have really stood uh, on the side of Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has gotten a lot of the same criticisms you mentioned of, oh, these are foreign hands, this is CIA, and so on. And, and sort of like going back to that um, duality of, um, I think Westerners, uh, what I've heard a very eloquent critique from Hong Kong activists, where they'll say things like, look, you can't have it both ways. You can't be the source of all evil. And then when we determine, you know, express a, a desire, so for self-determination or independence, then say, oh, you gave us that idea. You can't both oppress us and then be the source or the inspiration for our liberation. So is, has there been a similar sense for people like Veronica uh, or Benny where when the government does unleash these sort of foreign hands, these foreign puppets criticisms, what is their response? Is it, is it similar in that way of, look, these, this is our desire. This has been something we've wanted ever since you've, you've colonized or... Um, is that effective if we're looking at an Indonesian domestic audience? Who cares what the world thinks? This is happening in Indonesia. Is that something where the Indonesian audience will agree with this sort of foreign puppets um, line of, of propaganda? Or is it something where if you talk to a person on the street, you, you'd get many different responses. Some would be sort of, you know, drinking... Uh, uh, drinking that in, agreeing completely, some would be saying, no, you know, this is something the Indonesian government does whenever they want something. What, how does this rhetoric, um, how, do, how do the activists who, who do work with foreign audiences, what do they say in response? And then how does this propaganda affect the Indonesian domestic audience uh, in your experience? Well, uh, like you said, like um, most of the activists and, and pop ones, they're, they're very, they find it very insulting when the government um, says something like, you know, oh, all these protests are because of foreign, you know, foreign parties instigating stuff, because, like, it, 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 it again has like this condescending tone to it, like as if, you know, pop ones can't think for themselves, and anything that happens must be like, oh, it must be someone else who's like orchestrating the whole thing. It can't be like uh, uh, an, an organic, like a, a real, you know, movement. So that's that's one thing, and then for for how effective the propaganda is, I think I think a lot of people do tend to uh, will tend to believe this because um, there's not a lot of love for the West, I guess, in Indonesia. Like again, they're seen as like uh, colonizers and and sort of like, you know, imperialists and that kind of thing. And, and Papua especially has been always been seen as this like, sort of like, because of the Freeport mine, which is like, uh, until very recently was majority owned by a, a US company. And so that's like, it's everything like, um, people tend to like, be like, oh, yeah, this is like, oh, the US is, has some, some, some role in this, because you know, they want to keep the Freeport mine or something like that. So, so I think it's been, it's, I think it's actually been pretty effective. I mean, even though, of course, there are people that will, um, that will 
that will push back against it, like saying like, like what evidence do you have of actual foreign intervention? But I think for the, the majority of Indonesians, I think um, it's, it's sort of like the, the government's statements are kind of like taking advantage of like suspicions that they already have of like basically like these foreigners must be doing something that because they want like Papuan gold or Papuan land or something and that's that's why these protests and stuff are happening and um there's i guess there's like a a level of denial i guess like a denial that uh the indonesian government or the indonesian people have ever done anything wrong in papua so because we don't want to like admit that there have been like bad things going on in papua uh then we have to like find some like scapegoats to 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 blame all these like protests and writing it must be like someone else's fault and i think the government found like a very good one in like these like anonymous foreign parties so this is sort of a complicated question um it's about what are the incentives for indonesia's military to have the situation in west papua remain uh, as it is um Indonesia's military has a very complicated history, both with the amount of power um, it's been allowed to accrue politically, but also um, how entwined at times it can seem with Indonesia's production of capitalism. So on uh, factories or businesses that require large pools of labor, it's not uncommon, uh, according to my understanding, for military to, to oftentimes be on site as sort of a uh, policing mechanism for making sure that labor uh, disruption or labor activism doesn't happen. Um, and I would imagine that in other situations, um, the military would have economic ex- incentives, not only through, let's say, uh, the Indonesian state budget uh, of, of uh, diverting large amounts of money into the military, but also things like um, Indonesia businesses or foreign businesses perhaps being owned or partially connected to the military. So if if Jakawi woke up tomorrow and he said, I want to end the occupation in West Papua, what would the uh, what would his ability be to do so without having to face off against Indonesia's military? What what is uh, the incentives right now for Indonesia's military to have the situation in West Papua remain as is. Like you said, the military, it used to be like uh, even more powerful. I would say like uh, during the Suharto era, they had seats. There's like a number of seats reserved for the military in the House of Re- Representatives, like the, the Congress. So they used to have like this huge um, influence like and very like open influence, explicit influence on like how the, the government and like policies and stuff like that and and like you say there's they own a lot of land in various parts of Indonesia and they there's like a lot of businesses are are connected in some way to the military and um, but uh, after Suharto fell in 98 there were a bunch of reforms that were enacted to try and like basically like stop this military involvement in civilian government right so so um the military like the the military could no longer hold seats in the house of representatives and actually 
now the members of the military and the police are not allowed to vote in elections. So they don't actually have, because there was a worry that, because there's like these, this huge block of people in the army, like if one general says, oh, you should vote for this guy, then it would be like, you know, everyone would, uh, this, there's like this huge amount of voters that can be mobilized just because they're in the army. So, so that was, um, that, those are some of the reforms that were enacted to, to kind of like reduce the amount of um, military influence in, in government. But it's, it's definitely still there, even though it's not as explicit as it used to be, because even um, um, after uh, the, the president I talked to you about earlier, Abdurrahman Wahid, he was one of the people who, who was like very open to listening to Papuans uh, talk about self-determination and stuff. And he was eventually um, sort of um, deposed, I guess, deposed, not by the military, really, it was more by, by, by the House of Representatives and, and various political parties. But part of the reason that he was able to be deposed was because he also had lost the backing of the military. So um, there's a lot of it's it's very complex, and there is a a a, a concern among, uh, among Papuan activists that I've talked to that say that basically Jokowi doesn't seem to be willing to stand up to like these uh, these the these security forces and like what they want, and that's um, that's definitely been uh, a a criticism of Jokowi, but uh, at the same time, it's hard to say exactly like how much power the military has because, uh, as I said, like technically they're not even allowed to vote. They're they're not they don't have a say in the House of Representatives. But uh, more recently, Jokowi has allowed um, ministries and like bodies to have active military officers as like um, sort of as like executives in various civilian ministries, which has also been criticized a lot by, by the government, uh, sorry, by activists. And so there's, there's a worry that, that uh, after all this hard work to kind of reduce the influence of the military, it's like slowly kind of coming back. And uh, I think the, the Papuan, the response to Papua has also been very, mo like they sent, thousands of, of troops into Papua since the, the protests first started. And um, a lot of people see that as sort of like a regression towards like a more like militaristic approach to Papua that Jokowi has always said that he wanted to avoid. Obviously, it is not a perfect one-to-one -one and we can't map the um, unique aspects of Hong Kong onto uh, Indonesia's handling of West Papua compared to China's handling of the Hong Kong protesters. But it is interesting in that if you talk to West Papuan activists, um, just like you'll talk to Hong Kong activists, when the protests first started, they were peaceful. Eventually, I believe, yes, government buildings were burned, but uh, it's important to keep in mind that when these protests first started, uh, they, they appeared just like Hong Kong to be peaceful and through 
um, the government choosing in both instances to take this sort of line of violence and police suppression and rather than send in negotiators to immediately send in, um, in Hong Kong's case, the police, in, in Indonesia's case, uh, the, the army, um, and to sort of completely refuse any dialogue, um, that these were choices. Um, I, I think that's very important to note, that this, these were situations that, at least from, from my understanding, were just immediately escalated. Um, and now it seems like in both situations, there's no way out, or at least there's no good way out. Uh, there's no good way to resolve these when um, it seems in both instances that the government's first response was was utter sort of suppression and, and violence rather than trying to initiate dialogue. So I wanted to ask, uh, from your perspective and, and from your familiarity with Indonesia's government and sort of its history of how it will try to um, uh, resolve these protests or um, from the strategy maybe that Jokowi or the military or uh, together these, these bodies are um, trying to uh, use in West Papua, how do you th see this situation ending? How do you see things playing out from here? And I know it's very hard to predict or say, but what, what are your thoughts or feelings or, or suspicions about where things are going to go in West Papua? It's very hard to say because the, the, the protests have continually, like, it, um, I think there was an expectation maybe by the government that after that uh, Monday uh, on August 19, that it would have, like, the protests would have, uh, like, sort of petered out maybe within a few days. But they kept happening, like, uh, for a whole week. And then the next week it continued again. And that's, um, and even, there have been protests in Jakarta as well, even though of course they're not as big, but there were protests in front of the, the presidential palace uh, in Jakarta and uh, where they were flying the, the flag, the, the morning star flag that is uh, banned uh, by the government. And uh, some students who protested have been arrested because of that. And um, so there's this, um, I'm not really sure like how, I think there, um, I haven't been able to contact the correspondents in Papua uh, for a few days, but, but um, from what I see in, in some Papuan media and also from uh, Veronica Coman's uh, tweets, there, there are still protests going on right now. And that it, there's no sign of it sort of stopping. And I don't think that this is something that, I think like either the president has to actually go there or like ha has to like have an actual, like he has to do something decisive, I think, to make, to, to really um, at least stop the protest for the, time being because I, I I don't think that the response so far has been very very um, I mean the 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 for the racist um, abuse in Surabaya like the initially the 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 demands of the protesters were actually just about the racist abuse in Surabaya right like they were initially um, they wanted because there was a video going around of someone who looked like he was wearing a military uniform 
who was calling the Papuans monkeys. And they wanted this guy to be prosecuted, to be arrested and to be prosecuted for um, racial abuse. But in, uh, there's been no suspects named from any uh, security personnel, either police or the military. And because this thing has like has been kind of like left to fester, the protests have, you know, uh, gotten bigger and then they've expanded to just from just this racism issue to self-determination. And I think it's like gone like way too far to like put the, the cat back in the bag and the it's the the I think the president either has to go there or there has to be like a, a big decisive action because I don't think this is just going to be able to be just swept under the rug after this. Um, the the UN High Commissioner has issued a statement, but it's been very like I don't think it's uh, it's um, they 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 haven't really like called on the government to to let them in or or made any big calls and i think um i don't know it's it's really hard for me to see how it will end if the government is just going to be like very is take is going to take the same approach it has so far so um yeah it's, it's i i don't really i don't really know how it, uh, what the government will do next. And I think basically the, the key is whether the, the uh, President Jokowi is willing to really like make, like uh, uh, maybe make some, do something that is, uh, has a political risk from the majority of his constituents and, and kind of like be more open to at least having dialogue with um, these people and, and talking at least about the idea of self-determination, if not like a referendum. Last question, and this is speculative, so take your best shot at it. Um, we're looking around Asia at the moment. We're seeing these protests and movements in places as diverse as West Papua to New Zealand to Hong Kong. And then we're starting to see protests in other places, um, large-scale protests, protests with demands that have not heard from voices that typically are silent. So um, large-scale movements in France, like the Gilets Jaunes, uh, also the movement uh, involving migrants there, the Gilets Noirs. Um, we're seeing sort of a resurgence in activism in the United States connecting to things like Black Lives Matter or Standing Rock. We're seeing um, uh, conflicts in places like uh, Kashmir, and I'm wondering from, from your experience as a, uh, a journalist who is also a global citizen, having um, been in other cultures, studied other places, and most likely talked to colleagues who come from uh, these, these uh, complex and uh, nuanced um, perspectives from having traveled the world and seen different systems and seen the similarities and differences uh, that exist all over the world. Do you see this sort of wave of protests and, and unrest as something uh, that's, that's far bigger? Um, do you see it as something like what Pankaj Mishra called the age of anger? Or do you 
believe from your experience, um, these are, you know, just sort of unique events that are occurring locally um, based on very specific contexts of economics or colonialism or racism. So I know that's a very hard question to answer. So, you know, in no way do I expect for you to give me something definitive, but do you see these as sort of a constellation of a, of a far bigger trend, or should we look at, in your opinion, an event like West Papua as just a single star? Is it, is it something connected to, to a bigger universe, or is it, is it its own sort of singular entity? I'm not really super familiar. I, I know about Black Lives Matters and also the Standing Rock protests, but I'm not super familiar about what's happening in uh, France. But uh, and and um, there have been comparisons. Even uh, uh, some of my colleagues have, about uh, have made comparisons with Hong Kong and, and the the Papua protests and like how it's just like kept going because like the Hong Kong protests. There have been protests in Hong Kong before, right? About for independence and stuff, but it 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 seemed to have like like petered out within like a few days, right? But this has it's kept going and going, and that it's the same thing that's happening in Papua, which is that um, the like what people maybe expected to like kind of just peter out has just kept going, and the the, the and has no has shown no signs of stopping, and um, I don't know if it's. Maybe it's um, a reaction because I've personally I felt that the the world that has m- many governments have been moving more and more to the right, including Indonesia, and um, this might be a part of, like of, of a counter reaction to that. Maybe that's some feeling, but again, the the Papua thing. Is also, I mean, the same way that the Hong Kong protests were like sparked by the extradition law, right? So it started off like a rejection of the extradition law, and then it it, it like kept going and going and like snowballed, and and at this point, it's like it's uh, even with the extradition law being um, withdrawn. withdrawn, right? Yeah, withdrawn. It's uh, there. I don't think they there's the protesters are satisfied, right? So. I think it's it's the same feeling here where maybe it's reached some sort of critical point like all this like years of injustice and 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 uh abuses and all this has has kind of reached a point where it's it's uh it can't be like held in anymore and that's what uh, a lot of Papuans I've I've talked to have said it's like this has been going it's like festering and festering and festering and this is like it was just like a trigger and this is it's it's not going to be held back in and um I think maybe part of it is like everyone always says like it's social media but I, I do honestly think that social media has helped it become because even with an internet blackout there has still been able to be like reports coming out of there and like uh, videos and all these things and it, and it's harder to ignore I guess it's like harder to just like sweep under the rug and, and I think um, that's I think that's what's going on here and in Hong Kong and maybe also in other places. Well this was a pleasure uh, for us to chat with you we've been trying really hard 
um, to get more coverage of West Papua, to speak with people uh, in Indonesia and West Papua about these issues. They're very complex. They're, um, they require a great deal of nuance and care to discuss. And I really appreciate you speaking with us today um, on some of these complex topics and, and hard conversations. Um, just to, to conclude, where can people find you? Do you have any recommendations on um, for people in, interested in learning more about Indonesia and West Papua? And if you have any final thoughts, please share them. Um, do, is there anything else that we didn't touch upon that you think bears mentioning? Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, the Jakarta Post uh, website is thejakartapost.com, and we are we've been trying to be uh, keep up on updates on Papua for the past three weeks. And um, I'm probably going to write another story tomorrow. And uh, so about the government propaganda, uh, what the, how what the government propaganda has been like on the Papua issue. So. That's the story. Um, for other other journalists, um, there's uh, a journalist named Fabriana Firdaus. Uh, she's she's a freelancer. I think she's currently freelancing for Al Jazeera, and she was in Papua. I think at least last week. I don't know if she's still there, but she's also been uh, writing about it. Uh, I think her Twitter account is at Febro Firdaus. F E B R O F I R D-A-U-S. And, um, yeah, those are, um, I think for the guard, the guardian has also done a really good, uh, long form story, uh, about the, the protests in West Papua. I think, um, the, the writer is Kate Walton. She's, she's the Indonesian correspondent and she writes, uh, a lot of very good stories on Indonesia as well. Um, yeah, uh, final thoughts. Uh, well, I think this Papua one, uh, the problem process have been very underreported, even in Indonesia, but also especially in like uh, international media. I think there's. Uh, I think that's also why some Papuans kind of feel like there's like some complicity of Western governments in what's happening in 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 Papua, and so um, I hope that that more people do pay attention to it because I think inter. Even though you know, like I said, the the government um, government has been able to, to like scapegoat foreign parties, I think that um, maybe not governments, but at least like foreign foreign public like uh, worldwide attention on the issue would help would help uh, get a a resolution faster. So um, I hope that uh, uh, more people you know, pay attention to what's going on and, 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 um, uh, you know, and basically like to kind of like ensure that the, the government doesn't do anything, you know, drastic. 